The reading is from Philippians chapter 1, starting at verse 11. And if you're following in the church Bibles, it's page 1178. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best, and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of God. Lord Jesus, I pray that you'd come by your Spirit that you'd give us all ears to hear your voice. Put your words in my mouth. Set them on fire with your Holy Spirit. Use them, Lord, to change our hearts and minds more into your glory. For Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Now I wonder if I wonder if anyone has ever written you a glowing report. I'm sure they have at some time or other, whether that was at school, although that certainly wasn't my experience, I have to say. Or perhaps someone gave you a reference for a, a job interview, a, a truthful reference, of course, or just a personal letter telling you what a special, amazing person you are. I'm sure at some time in your life, You've had a glowing report. But even if you think you haven't, take heart. Because this morning, this letter, which Paul wrote to the Christians in the city of Philippi in the middle of the first century, well, let's think of it as if it's been written to St. Matthew's today. Because it reads like a glowing report. I love this letter. And I've often used it um, as a prayer For all of you, for the church family here at St. Matthew's. You see, six and a half years ago, when I was first approached about coming to St. Matthew's, I think a lot of people were sceptical that the church could flourish again as it once had in the past. I heard people say, ooh, Southgate's a tough place, you know, brave move pads, you know, really encouraging words like that. What they didn't know, although a few close friends did, 
was that I was convinced that God had already been speaking to me about coming to St. Matthew's. Someone I used to go to as a kind of spiritual mentor in 2009 asked me as a spiritual exercise to write my own obituary, not for the years that I'd already lived, but for those I still had to live. And even though at the time there was no talk of it, there was no vacancy here, there was no obvious possibility of one opening up, I wrote that obituary all about a ministry here at St. Matthew's. And 18 months later, just before I would have had to move on from my curacy to Gra- from, uh, Greyfriars somewhere else, St. Matthew's unexpectedly became vacant and I was approached to consider coming here. And I have to admit, I was still quite amazed and excited and terrified in equal measure at the prospect. I wonder then how the Apostle Paul felt when something rather different happened to him which led him to, to start the very first church on European soil in AD 52, just 20 years or so after Jesus had appeared to him on the Damascus Road. Because the Apostle Paul's plans were to go somewhere quite different. He had felt called to take the gospel north and east to Bithynia and Asia, but God just kept closing the doors to him from going there. And then one day, God gave him a vision of a man in Macedonia calling to him to come over, to come over this way. And Paul followed that call to what we now call Greece and boarded a ship from Troas and eventually he arrived in Philippi, a very, very important trade hub on the European-Asian trading route, if you like. And there he preached the gospel and a new church was born. So fast forward a few years and we have this beautiful letter written by Paul from a prison cell, probably in Rome, although some people argue about whether it was in Rome or whether it was in Caesarea or whether it was somewhere else because he did get frequently imprisoned. And it feels as if Paul is especially fond of the church in Philippi. Just imagine, to this, imagine this letter being addressed to the church family here at St. Matthew's. To all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at St. Matthew's. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you in Southcote. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Well, you can see why I often use it as a prayer for the church family here. It's so inspiring. And it chimes with how I feel about St. Matthew's. Paul thanks God each time he remembers them and he feels great joy because of their partnership in the gospel. He goes on to say, I have you in my heart. And St. Matthew's has always valued relationship from before I certainly got here, whether that's simply meeting for coffee after church, whether it's sharing in small groups on midweek evenings or during weekdays at Wednesday communion, connect for ladies, lunch for seniors, time for you on a Friday. And of course, the many, many one-on-one contacts that are made during 
the week as people drop in on one another, they care for one another, phone each other up to check they're okay. It's a wonderful picture of church family being worked out. But Paul never takes his eye off the goal, which is the advancement of the gospel. And so he prays for them in verses 9 to 11 that their love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that they would know really how to act and how to to be to the glory and praise of God. And his heart is for them to grow in spiritual maturity with an eye to being missional people as well as loving one another. And I feel so blessed here at St. Matthew's that we do have that partnership in the gospel whether that's teaching the next generation of children through Kids Church, through RE Inspired we had on Friday morning, assemblies, holiday clubs, whether it's having the privilege of seeing people's faith come alive on the Alpha course, or working with other churches to engage the community in big questions, or being part of a town-wide ministry like street pastors. I think we've got 10 or more street pastors as members of St. Matthew's. Or putting on lunch for people in the community at coffee shop lunch stop. You know, we're still a relatively small church, but we're touching hundreds, perhaps even thousands of people every year in many different ways with the good news of Jesus Christ. And that brings me huge joy. But the Christian life is not always easy. It's not all good news all the time. And Paul the Apostle was a realist He was never a dreamer. He knew how hard life could be for those Christians in the churches that he started and encouraged. He lived in a time of great disparity between rich and poor, much as we do now today. And the church at Philippi was made up of an incredibly diverse group of believers. Just have a think for a moment about the first few people who came to faith when Paul arrived in Philippi and started preaching the gospel. We, we read about it in the book of Acts in chapter 16. Don't worry, turning there, I'll just describe to you the first three converts. Lydia. Lydia was his first Philippian convert. She was a well-to-do businesswoman who traded in purple cloth, which is kind of the equivalent of Savile Row tailoring or West End fashion houses today. And she must have had a decent-sized house because it was in Lydia's house that the church first met in Philippi. That was the first Philippian church. His next convert was a Gentile slave girl at the bottom end of the, of, of the, of the, of the uh, um, people's fortunes, if you like. She told people's fortunes. She was possessed by an evil spirit. Her, her owners were so upset when Paul drove the evil spirit out of her and neutralised those psychic powers because it brought them an income that they had him arrested and severely flogged and thrown into prison. And you know, it's easy to just say those words, severely flogged. But his back would have been laid bare. Flesh and sinews and muscle and he would have been in agony. A severe flogging would have been... Would have been Something horrendous to endure. Then he's thrown into prison. And of course, what does Paul do? In prison he finds his third convert. In the form of a probably middle class jailer. Who is about to... Well, what happens is that Paul prays. An earthquake occurs. The prison doors 
fly open. And the jailer contemplates suicide because he's going to lose all his prisoners. And he knows that he'll be held responsible. But Paul, instead of walking away to freedom, chooses to stay in the prison, leads the jailer to Christ and has his third convert. Whereupon, later on that day, the whole jailer's family are converted. So the church in Philippi got started with such an amazing display of God's power in people's lives. And it caused a lot of friction in the local community as well, resulting in Paul actually having to leave Philippi not many weeks or or perhaps a a few months later. But it did give Paul the confidence to say in this letter to the Philippians, written a few years later, that it was God, he who began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He knew because God had started it that God would finish it. And Philippi became a thriving, growing church. And I've always had a strong sense of God's hand on the church here at St. Matthew's. And that gives me confidence that what he started here, he will carry on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I'm absolutely sure I won't be the last vicar of St. Matthew's, unless, of course, Christ returns in the meantime. William Wilberforce was aged 27 when he sensed God's call on his life to fight against the inhuman and degrading slave trade. Do you know, in the year 1787, 10 million, it's so hard to get your head around it, 10 million African slaves in that one year alone were transported to the plantations in terrible conditions, many of them dying. And in that year, aged 27, William Wilberforce, called by God, put down a motion in the House of Commons his first bill against the slave trade. But it was a very unpopular cause because many people got very rich off it. People liked having slaves. But what he said was this, so enormous, so dreadful did its wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would. I, from that time, determined I would never rest until I had effected its abolition. And you know, I think most of us would have given up. In, in bills were debated. In, in 1789, there was another bill put forward. It was defeated. In ni- 1791, it was defeated. In 92, it was defeated. In 94, it was defeated. 96, 98, 90, 1799, yet another bill to abolish slavery was defeated in the House of Commons. They all failed. 30 years later, in 1831... William Wilberforce sent a message to the Anti-Slavery Society in which he said, our motto must be perseverance. And ultimately, I trust that the Almighty will crown our efforts with success. And of course he did. In July 1833, the Abolition of Slavery Bill was finally passed in both Houses of Parliament. Three days later, Wilberforce died. He was buried in Westminster Abbey, in recognition of his 45 years persevering struggle on behalf of African slaves. His ceaseless work had taken a huge toll on his health. He suffered greatly, but in the end, God brought to completion what he'd started in the life 
of William Wilberforce. Paul knew that life could be very hard for some of the Philippian Christians, and so it is for some of us. Some of you, or perhaps those known to us in our church family, are carrying a heavy burden of care for loved ones, or close family, or friends, or neighbours. Some are struggling because not everyone at home shares your faith in the Lord Jesus. And that's quite discouraging. Some are struggling because perhaps there was a time when you had dreams about what you felt God was going to do in you and through you, and they haven't materialised yet, and you wonder if they ever will. Some are struggling with illness, pain, depression, perhaps broken relationships, and it's hard to find God in the midst of all of that. Some are struggling for money, for jobs, for purpose. And in these hardships, although Paul's prayer may have been written to the Philippian church a long time ago, I think this opening prayer in his letter can be of great help to us as individual Christians today. Firstly, he prays in verse 9 for growth in their love. Presumably he's thinking of their love for God and their love for one another. And the Greek word that is translated may abound more and more literally means to overflow. To overflow with love. Romans 5.5 says that God has poured out his love into our hearts by his Holy Spirit whom he's given us. And that's the well to which we go in order that we can pour out his love on the world around us. Secondly, this love is linked to a growth in their knowledge and depth of insight. Paul is interested that they mature as Christians, growing in the knowledge of God so that they can be guided by him and live according to his will. And we do that only by spending time with him and listening to his spirit through scripture and prayer, both as individuals and in groups. Thirdly, Paul prays for a growth in holiness, which he describes as being pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Interestingly, the Greek word for pure here means literally unmixed, denoting a kind of inner purity which, where even our motives are clear and unmixed. And the word that's translated blameless means without giving offence, and that refers to a more outer way of life. And so Paul's prayer is that they may be both inwardly and outwardly holy. And lives led like this are fruitful. Paul says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. So I think we can be encouraged. We can have confidence in the future. One more story to illustrate this, I suppose. Our friend, Kirsty and I have a friend called Mary Stevenson. I've mentioned her a couple of times before, but she felt called to South Africa about 15 years ago to go to an area not far from where our daughter now lives um, in South Africa. And it was riddled then with HIV AIDS. Some 30% of the population were infected and it wiped out almost a generation of black South Africans in that area. And Mary knew that the long-term solution was education. And so she helped to develop the Waterberg Welfare Society, which went um, around educating communities on how not to contract 
the disease. But as they did that, they came across so many people dying horrible deaths that they felt called to start a hospice, which they did. But then they were faced with hundreds of AIDS orphans who had nowhere to live and they had to work out how to care for them in the community. And on top of that, the local witch doctors were working against them, giving people the opposite advice to what they were giving the people. And even the police often worked against them due to corruption. Mary's closest friend and colleague was killed in a terrible road accident. And there were many times when things seemed quite hopeless and she could have given up. But all through these 15 years, Mary has seen God's hand on what has happened. Today there's a a centre, a hospice, clinic, school, youth ministry, radio station, training centre, chapel. It's a fantastic Christian witness. Many of the staff are strong Christians. Some of them were rescued from death's door through the project. And actually they make the best counsellors. And where once the management team were nearly all white Europeans, Mary has trained up and staffed up the local people so that the whole thing is now run operationally by the local community. What God began in her 15 years ago, and despite all manner of ups and downs, he has brought to completion. The work's not over by any means, but what he called her to, he has brought about. And what this letter tells us is that every Christian who knows, loves and follows Jesus Christ can be sure that God will bring to completion the work he has begun in us. If you know him, if you love him and follow him, rest assured, your story is not over. In fact, it may well only just be beginning. Because he who began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's his promise. Amen.